Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. As many of you know, Stay Tuned is going on tour. You can find all the details about our stops at cafe.com tour. But I'm excited to announce that we've added two new guests who will join me in Denver and Detroit. We'll be in Denver on Thursday, October 24th, where former Colorado governor, recent presidential candidate, and now candidate for Senate, John Hickenlooper, will speak with me about the current political moment. Then our previously announced guest, Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, will impart her wisdom on gun control, fighting the NRA, and what it takes to inspire a grassroots movement. That's in Denver on October 24th. Then on Tuesday, November 12th, we'll be headed to Detroit. There, I'll be joined by my one-time colleague, former Detroit U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid. She'll join me on stage to talk about strains on the rule of law under Trump, congressional efforts to hold the president accountable, and the outlook for impeachment. Then our previously announced guest, Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel, will speak with me about the most pressing local issues in her efforts to challenge the Trump administration's policies on climate, immigration, and health care. That's in Detroit on November 12th. Get tickets to these shows at cafe.com slash tour. And don't forget to check out our stops in Minneapolis, November 5th with Mayor Jacob Fry, and in Atlanta on December 4th, where I'll be speaking with former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. That's cafe.com slash tour. Cafe.com slash tour. I hope to see you all there. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's just disappointing to me that there isn't somebody of some stature who's willing to just say, this man's unfit, because they all know it. They just all know it. You know they know it. That's George Conway. He's a vocal critic of President Trump and a longtime Republican who has left the party. His recent article for The Atlantic, Unfit for Office, describes the erratic behavior of the president in extensive and troubling detail. What he outlines isn't a president with disturbing political views, but a president with a disturbed mind. George Conway joins me to talk about the president's mental state, the temperature in Washington on impeachment, and why so few Republicans are willing to break with Trump, and whether he got me fired. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, usually at this point in the program, I answer your questions. But because this week I have a special guest, George Conway, I'm putting a lot of the questions you have sent to me to him. I ask him about his opinion of the letter the White House sent to the House committees, saying essentially they won't cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. I ask him how long the impeachment inquiry should take, what the parameters of the articles of impeachment should be, and how he grades both Adam Schiff and Bill Barr. I also ask him his view on whether Nancy Pelosi should have a full House vote on whether to proceed with the impeachment inquiry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with George Conway, which is special for a number of reasons, not the least of which is he does almost no interviews. So among other things, you'll hear what his voice sounds like. 
And don't forget, Ann Milgram and I get into all these issues in great detail on the Cafe Insider podcast. Every week we break down the biggest legal and political news making the headlines. Members get access to exclusive content like a weekly newsletter and bonus material for my interviews with guests, like today's guest, George Conway. Try the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And now let's turn to my conversation with the elusive George Conway. My guest this week is George Conway. George is a lawyer in the litigation department at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. But he's best known for two things. One, his frequent and public disagreements with President Trump. And two, his marriage to White House counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway. Most of the discussion today centers on item one. I spoke to George about something incredibly important, the mental instability of President Trump. George is a lifelong conservative, but unlike many others in the Republican Party, he's been outspoken about Trump's flagrant violations of the rule of law in op-eds and on Twitter. He's also formed Checks and Balances, a group of conservative lawyers from the Federalist Society who banded together to advocate for the Constitution and the power of truth. Once a Republican and now unaffiliated, George joins me to talk about the future of his former party, his hopes for 2020, and how to recover from the damage Trump has dealt to truth, law, and justice. That's coming up. Stay tuned. George Conway, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Preet. So can I say right off the bat that I find it telling that you have selected Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, <laughs> to come speak with me? <laughs> well, um, the are traffic you, was better to get into the city, I can say are that. You, are you prepared to unburden yourself, sir? I think I've unburdened myself a lot already. <laughs> yes, with 11,300 words. No, 11,427. Not that you're counting. No, not counting. How many, how many words did you edit out? Probably about 6,000. <laughs> Whoa. Actually, most of that was done by a wonderful editor at The Atlantic, uh, Yoni Applebaum. So congratulations on your article. Thank you. Published in The Atlantic. Yes. I think it is longer than any New Yorker article I read, so congratulations on that also. But I, you had a lot of I don't know if that's a good thing. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I read, I read every word of it. So let's talk about the thesis of the article. It's what? The thesis of the article is that if you look at the ingrained personality characteristics of Donald Trump and you use some of the knowledge that's in the psychological literature and use the diagnostic criteria of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and focus on the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which you can also call pathological narcissism and sociopathy, um, you'll find that his behavioral characteristics are simply inconsistent with what you need for someone to carry out the duties of, of the president of the United States. And in particular, that's true about his narcissism. And his narcissism, his extreme narcissism, is really his focus on himself above everything else in the world. But other, other people are narcissists. There are, and there are. There, and in fact, narcissism is a can continuum. Be can be good. It can be good. You need a certain amount of narcissism to be a healthy human being. You need that kind of confidence to go out in the world and accomplish things. It can become dangerous when it becomes excessive. And in the case of somebody like Trump, 
it means that he's simply incapable of taking other people's interests into account in going about his business. And in this case, he can't take into account the interests of the country. He can't take into account the interests of the Constitution. He can't take into account his duties. And he puts himself, his own interests, above the country's in almost any circumstance. And that's exemplified by the most recent scandal, the Ukraine scandal, where he's essentially using his office, he is using his office, using the power of potentially withholding funds or even simply the power of the presidency to extort a smaller nation to try to get that nation to issue some kind of a statement against Trump's principal political rival. And you also saw it in connection with the Mueller investigation. Mueller investigation, he made that investigation all about himself in the end. Well, it kind of was. Well, well, <laughs> That's it, a little it, bit yes. more fair, no? Well, no. I mean, look, it was an investigation about what happened in the 2016 election. It was about what the Russians did as much as anything. It was about whether the campaign had contacts and did anything and colluded, well, not colluded really, but conspired with any Russians. And to some extent that implicated his conduct, but at the end of the day, there wasn't evidence of his direct involvement in anything. There wasn't any evidence of a criminal conspiracy that was chargeable that Mueller found. And it was because Trump couldn't abide by the fact it was any investigation at all about this subject, which the mere mention of this subject caused him distress because he felt it called into question his great victory. He thought it was all about him. He made it all about him then by trying to obstruct the investigation when his duty as president should be. Well, the Russians did try to interfere. Maybe they tried to help me, but they shouldn't do this. I'm the president of the United States. My duty is to protect the country. And I shouldn't be interfering with this investigation. And instead, he did interfere with the investigation. He, he attempted to obstruct it in multiple ways. He even obstructed justice about obstructing justice when he had Don McGahn. He tried to get Don McGahn to write a false memo about things he told McGahn to do. And because he did that, he, he created out of nothing volume two of the Mueller report. He made the thing about himself. It didn't have to be. I want to talk more about the diagnosis. Right. Because it goes on at some length. But before we do that... Some people would ask the question, why are you writing this article? You're a lawyer, a very accomplished one. I, I looked up your background. You went to some pretty good schools, but you don't have a psychology degree. Right. Why did you decide to write this and explore this? I mean, it's very compelling, but I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know quite well, how to value it. I mean, a couple of reasons. One is I think there is this fear to talk about this, even though it's, it's been the elephant in the room throughout the Trump administration. And for the life of me, I don't understand what the fear has been about talking about it. That's one reason. The second reason is it does tie directly into his ability to carry out his duties as president. I mean, can he, can he subordinate his interests to those of the nation? A pathological narcissist can't do that. That's the essence of the problem. And it's funny, we watch all the press coverage over the last three years, and you see a lot of commentary to the effect that, what's the strategy? Why is he doing that? <laughs> is he playing, you know, 15-dimensional chess? And the answer is, he isn't. 
Because someone just, once put it, I think this way, said he's actually trying to eat the pieces. That's right. No, that, yes, that was a, <laughs> that was an unnamed former senior administration official in, uh, I think it was BuzzFeed. But this is the way he behaves. There's no plan behind it. But has he always been this way? Yes. I mean, that's one of the things. If you go back through um, his history, you know, he's always been narcissistic. Right. Extremely narcissistic. And he's always been a pathological liar. But you point out, and I think this is correct, because I've seen older videos too, that separate from any personality disorder that you think he might have, he has experienced diminished cognitive ability. Well, you have to be very careful about that. It's clear if you look at the videos, for example, there's one video that is out there from a Today Show interview with Tom Brokaw from, I think, the late 80s. And it's very striking. We watch Donald Trump speaking coherently in complete sentences and very smoothly. It's a, it's a marked contrast to him today. If you look at videos from three or four years ago, there seems to be a difference. All that said, the experts say that you cannot make a determination that he is suffering some kind of an unusual cognitive decline on the basis of just that. It requires a full battery of testing of the sort that he has not had. But if it were the case that it, it is some, something more significant than just age-related decline, it could be very, it could be, could aggravate the situation. And you can make a strong argument that, uh, I mean, com- I think- The combination, I, they're bad. The combination would be very bad. And you can make a strong, I mean, you can make a strong argument. I think he should be tested. I think, frankly, it, we, we might want to consider testing anybody who runs for the presidency who has a significant... Well, he has that doctor who says he's the healthiest president <laughs> ever, right? You, you don't think that's enough, George? No, no, no. And, and in fact, the, the kind of exam that he had at Walter Reed is a, is a minimal 10-minute exam that basically does things like it shows you a copy of a sh- photograph of, say, a sheep and says, what's right. that? And that's, that doesn't tell you anything at all. Other than he's not completely lost it at this precise moment. It doesn't right. tell you whether or not there's some kind of an onset of Alzheimer's, for example, right. that so could come if, into play in a year or two. If you showed him a picture of a sheep and he said, that's Greenland. He'd say it's then, fake news. <laughs> that would be different. But have you had an evolution in your thinking about this? Because yes. if, if he's always been this way, you've only been outspoken about it yeah, fairly I, recently. I, I, can, I can give you a rough of the history of my thinking on this. First of all, I, I just assumed that, I mean, I, I assumed he was a jerk. As a New Yorker <laughs> and a consumer of New York news, tabloid news, I see, I, see. Okay. I, I assumed, oh, yeah, he's a jerk. He, he, he can be a jerk. You know, I, and there was actually a point during the primaries where I resolved I could never support him. And that was when he said whatever he said about Heidi Cruz. I just found that so deeply offensive. Ted Cruz's wife. Correct. Right. At some point, I relented when, it, when he was the last person standing. And, and at that point, he was all we had. As a conservative Republican, he was all we had. And I had, you know, people said he was awful. He was the worst thing in the world. It's hard to believe people saying all those things about him. Nobody could be that bad. It turned out he was worse. And I just thought, I mean, in terms of his ignorance of issues, I thought he'd probably be, he'd learn more over time. 
And in terms of his popping off and saying things that were inappropriate, it would get better over time and, and you'd wince every so often at something he'd do or say, but you, it would be manageable. And you would get your tax break. And, and the judges and whatnot, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and when he became president, I thought, you know, he's a, he's a man with a big ego and he'd, he'd be in awe of the office. And he'd understand that if he wanted to earn his place in history, he had to consider the office and consider the importance of upholding the values of the country. And he'd understand that there's, there's something greater than him. You, you thought he'd grow into it. Correct. And in part, what a lot of people thought, myself included, that he was displaying his worst self during the campaign and he was a pragmatist, and he knows how to make deals, and he would work with the Democrats, and maybe something could get done. That was the most idealized version of what the future right, might and, hold. Right, and, and he'd start to be more presidential. He'd start to be dignified. He'd start, he'd learn the job, and he'd play the role. And it never happened. And you, you scratch your head. It, it, why? What, why does he keep doing this? It was a frustrating and aggravating thing to watch. And one day, I came across an article from Rolling Stone that had been published months before, and it was about Donald Trump being a pathological narcissist. It was written by a writer named Alex Morris who went through the diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, interviewed many experts, and she basically lined up his behavior with those diagnostic criteria. And it was a very compelling piece. And when I finished reading it, it was like a light bulb went off. And at that point, I started reading more and more about it. I even bought a copy of the DSM, which is I must say, extremely expensive. It's like $125 <laughs> for, for this manual. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's in its fifth edition. So DSM is what, the, what they call it, and because it's the fifth edition, they call it the DSM-5. And with respect to narcissistic personality disorder, which you spend the most time on, there are how many factors? There are nine diagnost- principal diagnostic criteria and you have to satisfy seven of them for a diagnosis. And of the nine, Donald Trump, according to your analysis, qualifies? I, I, think there's, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't say he's nine for nine. Nine for nine. I mean, the only argument that has ever been made that he, Donald Trump does not fit the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder has been made by a gentleman named Alan Francis, who participated in the drafting of the DSM-5's diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And his argument is that for all of these personality disorders in this section of the DSM, in order to separate minor issues from true mental disorders or mental illnesses, there, it's a question of degree. And what the DSM says is that in order for something to qualify as a disorder, the person has to be impaired in some manner, socially or, or occupationally 
or in some other major aspect of their life, or um, be in distress in some manner. Right. He says, actually, Trump causes distress Trump, Trump other people. causes distress, <laughs> and his narcissistic behavior, Francis says, actually has helped him, and he's been richly rewarded for it. So therefore, he's neither impaired nor distressed. And I think that's just factually wrong, particularly with regard to impairment. Although he became the president of the United States. He, he did. People with NPD can be very ambitious, but their performance can be limited or harmed by their reaction to criticism. Right. So that's one point. The other point is, I don't know how you can't say he hasn't been impaired in his job as president. This guy should be at 55, 57, 60 percent of the polls. If he had shut his mouth and somebody had taken his phone and thrown it into the Potomac two years ago or three years ago, he'd be at, he'd be at 57 percent in the polls. Right. But if you, if you had taken away his phone and taken away his Twitter and taken away his shamelessness and all these other things that you rightly decry – would he have beat 15 other people in the primary? I mean, isn't it, isn't well, it the case there's an argument that whatever you want to call his personality, it is, is that force that allowed him to beat Jeb Bush? Well, there, were, there were a lot of other, well, there were a lot of other factors involved. I mean, there was The Apprentice, which created this um, false image of him. There were the rules that the Republicans put into place after 2012 that created a bias in favor of the front runner so that within weeks of the primaries starting, you get into winner-take-all territory. Right. And he had this name recognition. He was running against 15 other people or 16 other people. And it was an era, it was a, a year in which people were sick of traditional politicians. Right. So all of those things helped him. Can we go back to The Apprentice for one second? Yeah. Because you tell a story about The Apprentice that I'm not sure everyone knows. And that is that on occasion, on a whim, Donald Trump would famously fire somebody but that it made no sense given what had happened in the show. <laughs> There's a terrific article. It comes from a, the anecdote comes from a terrific article in The New Yorker, which wasn't really about Donald Trump so much. It was actually a profile of Mark Burnett, who was the producer and creator of The Apprentice. The author tells the story in that article about how Trump basically was never prepared for the show. And he basically frequently didn't know what was going on. And he just arbitrarily fire people on whims. Frequently, they were the best. Sometimes they were the best candidates. And this would cause a great deal of trouble for the writers and editors of the staff of The Apprentice because it just, it just didn't make sense. The storyline didn't make sense. This is this guy was clearly the best one and, and he gets canned. Yeah. I, so, I know the feeling. Right. <laughs> and so, oh yeah, okay, Pre. <laughs> uh, yeah, at least you're disclosing your biases here, right? <laughs> so what they'd have to do is they'd have to scour hundreds of hours of video and cobble together and piece together something story out of those whereby Trump's arbitrary decision made some kind of sense. And the passage in the New Yorker article finishes with a comment from one of the editors on The Apprentice saying, I find it strangely satisfying that, I'm paraphrasing, that this is what they seem to be doing now at the White House. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, you're creating an alternative reality. Well, you're you're basically trying to, you know, he does these things. You don't want him to do them. And then you have to go back and try to make sense of them. I kept expecting you to say something about the following personality trait of the president. I remember reading an article about this once. The president cl- clearly has a sense of humor in the sense that he, he tells jokes. He's he, funny. He he's, he's, he's actually, that's one of his, it's one. It's a skill. It's a strength he has. Right. But he does not himself ever laugh. I know. I I. Have you ever met anyone who doesn't laugh? Um, I'd have to think about that. I don't know. But you're right. He is, he's very funny. But I don't know that all the time, that every single time that he's funny, he's intentionally funny. But yes, he's, he is intentionally funny um, sometimes. He has the ability to charm. There's no question. He, he has the ability to flatter and charm. Yeah, just ask, just ask the dictators of the world. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, he and that's he. If he thinks you're useful to him, and if you've been complimentary to him, he thinks you're on his side. He he can be very, very flattering, and it's helped him in his political career. So this is the question I have when I read your article, and when I see your tweets about personality disorder. And the question is, if his behavior and conduct is a result of a disorder, can we then not judge him? No. I mean, it, because, no, because we're not talking about character. What about his character gets the, excused by this analysis? It, it, there's no excuse for it. These are not, this is not like an insanity defense. I mean, th- this does not excuse moral failings. This would not be a defense to a criminal act, for example. These personality traits and defects actually do coincide with moral defects. There's no question about it. In fact, one of the descriptive terms in the psychological literature for narcissistics, narcissistic sociopaths, such as Trump, um, narcissistic sociopaths who have elements of paranoia and sadism, there's a term called malignant narcissism. And that was a term coined by a psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm, who was a Holocaust survivor. And he spent a lot of time writing and thinking and writing about what explains these tyrants like Hitler? What is it about their personality traits that is common? The point is that if there was a psychological designation for evil... It would be malignant narcissism. It coincides with moral failings. So there's nothing that in any of these psychological terms or even, you know, even if you had a full out actual diagnosis uh, that parallels what I wrote in the article, that would not excuse his moral failings. Not at all. Not for a moment. So you're a conservative. You remain a conservative. And yet you speak out. And you said the following recently in the last few days, uh, I think on the great platform of Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Where else? You said, I just don't get it. Why not just do the right thing? Worst thing that could happen to you is that you have to get a real job, but you'd always be able to say you did the right thing. Yeah, it's one of the mysteries to me about this era. Now, I, I get there are people who are not in a position to say or do anything there because they're junior or they, you know, they're not in a financial position of comfort, comfort. They're, they're vulnerable in some fashion. 
But there are people whose livelihoods don't depend on this. There are people, for example, who are no longer running for re-election in Congress. There are people who are independently wealthy. There are people who can just go back to the private sector. And what I don't understand is you've got all these people clearly shifting uncomfortably in their seats when when they're faced with the things that Donald Trump says and does. And I think the most recent example is, I don't know if you saw this or your listeners saw it, but there was this video that made the rounds a few days ago of Senator Joni Ernst, a veteran who was sitting uncomfortably at a town hall in her home state and being raked over the coals by a Republican voter who's saying, what are you doing? Well, this guy is is selling out the country in essence, and she's shifting uncomfortably. And basically her answer was, well, we're trying to do the best we can in the Senate to do things for the country. And I, you know, I can say stuff about the president, but he's just going to do what he's going to do. And, and for the life of me, I think that the, the, all these politicians, I can't see why they're doing it, but they're trying to figure out what's the safest course. If I go out and criticize him. Some people will attack me. If I don't, some people will attack me. They're trying to chart some kind of a middle ground, and they're trying to squeeze by. And instead of making just those hope political... It, hope it's over. Hope just it's over. It, like, maybe he'll just disappear to tomorrow. <laughs> and instead of making all these political calculations, although I think the calculation they should be making is he's going to be gone at some point, and there's going to be a reckoning, and history isn't going to be kind to people who said nothing or stood up for Trump... But that said, even if you don't believe in that, it's clear that they're not sure which way to go. And if you're not sure which way to go, why not just do the right thing? Is your advice to people in his inner circle to quit? If you can't have a positive effect on him, and I don't think anybody can, yeah. The only people I think who should, who may have to stay would be people in, in, you know, the national security area who, who can at least have some moderating or blunting effect, and particularly the lawyers. From what accounts have been appearing in the press, it looks like that when officials became alarmed at what what Trump had done on the July 25th call with Zelensky, they, they, they became alarmed that he had committed, Trump had committed a crime. And in fact, it appears that the CIA general counsel may have issued a criminal referral. There was a story yesterday, I think it might have been in the Times or the, or the Post, that a senior official who heard that call, according to the whistleblower, viewed the call as criminal. They, that's why they went and consulted the lawyers. What, what do the lawyers do? The lawyers try to protect Trump. Enable further. Right. These are people who work for the United States of America. They don't work for Donald Trump. And then yesterday's letter... The White House letter, the Cipollone's letter last night was a disgrace. <laughs> I want to get, I get into all of disgrace. that. It was a disgrace to the country, a disgrace to the presidency, and a disgrace to the, to the, to the legal profession. Going back to what you said a second ago about people around the president, how they should leave at the risk of getting into a delicate area. Not going there. Okay. But I think my position is clear on I'll be back with George in a moment. In a sea of breaking news, it's easy to get distracted from your day-to-day priorities. 
like making sure your home is safe and sound. But only one in five homes have home security, probably because most companies don't make it easy to find the right option when you do have the time to search. But not Simply Safe. Simply Safe makes it easy on you with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Simply Safe also protects every door, window, and room with 24/7 professional monitoring for just $15 a month. Plus, it's won a ton of awards, from CNET to the New York Times' Wirecutter. One thing that truly makes Simply Safe stand out is their video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, police often assume it's a false alarm, and the call goes to the bottom of the list. But not with Simply Safe. By using their special video verification technology, they can visually confirm that the break-in is happening, allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster. An effective and easy-to-use home security system is a priority to me. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice. So visit simplysafe.com/preet, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose, so go now. And be sure you go to simplysafe.com/preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. With HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, you get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. And all you need to do is cook and enjoy. With HelloFresh, cooking delicious meals at home can become a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From the step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh gives you everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. So you can finally say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food orders. HelloFresh offers something for everyone, from family recipes to calorie-smart meals and vegetarian options. They even have fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. They're also flexible. You can easily change your delivery days, food preferences, and skip a week, or add extra meals to your weekly order, as well as add-ons like garlic bread and cookie dough. My HelloFresh meal arrived promptly and properly packaged, so I knew my ingredients would be fresh. For someone who doesn't have a lot of time to cook but still wants something filling, HelloFresh makes it easy to whip together something healthy. Try it yourself. To get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com/staytuned80 and enter code staytuned80. That's like receiving 8 meals free when you go to hellofresh.com/staytuned80 and enter staytuned80. That's staytuned80. Now, back to my interview with George Conway. So let's talk about impeachment past and present. So this this article you've written the, the analysis you've done what is the relevance of that directly to the impeachment inquiry that's unfolding because it seems to me that's all about legal issues and factual matters is it your view that the house members should be taking into account the personality disorder yeah i do think that and i think i think when you're considering whether or not to impeach and remove a president of the united states i think it's fairly clear and a lot has been written on this that you you have to look at the number and significance of the impeachable acts you know you don't want to impeach somebody for one isolated incident that wasn't so bad and and i think particularly when you've got an election coming up and there's a bit of judgment involved in weighing the seriousness of what i call a breach of fiduciary duty that amounts to a high crime and misdemeanor and part of that 
is looking to patterns of behavior. And in the case of Trump, there is a pattern of behavior. He does tend to use his office for personal gain in many respects. I mean, you can point to his threats to Amazon and you can point to his apparent determination to have the next G7 summit at the Trump Doral. I mean, there are so many different things. I list many of them in the article, his his vendettas against ambassadors and allies and and so on. I mean, you can you can point to so many things, areas and ways in which he puts himself before the country. And not all of those things individually would amount to an impeachable offense, but they do fit a pattern. And the reason why they fit a pattern is because that's who he is. And the reason why that's who he is is because of these personality disorders. But do you think and they I should think call that, doctors? Do you think they should call psychologists? I do psychologists? think so because I think that it's sort of like the reverse of a criminal trial where you have an insanity defense, where the defense can put on experts to say that the defendant wasn't culpable because he lacked the ability to understand the significance of his actions. And here, I think in making the case that these impeachable acts such as Ukraine are symptomatic of a fundamental problem that he simply is not capable of carrying out his duties, I think it's worth putting on this evidence of his personality disorders. And I think it would help explain to the public the the nature of the problem, which is the president is supposed to act on behalf of the nation and is supposed to subordinate his personal interests to those of the nation. That is the duty that he assumes when he raises his right hand and says he has to, he is, he, he swears that he's going to faithfully execute the office of the president. And that's what he is required to do under Article 2 of the Constitution, which requires him to faithfully execute the Constitution and laws of the United States. And faithfully execute is a term of art under the law, which requires him to execute the law without fear or favor and follow the law and to exercise the power of his office in the nation's best interest and not for his own personal benefit, which he seems to be unable to do because he's all about himself. Would that focus in some way also make it a little less political and less partisan because it's not about yeah, and that, that, that's exactly yeah. right. And that's you asked me why I wrote this Atlantic piece, and that's fun. That's one of the reasons. It's not about politics. It's not about judges or tax cuts or whether you're for or against the the Affordable Care Act. It's about none of that. This is about fundamental, the basics of what a president of the United States is supposed to do, whether he's from the right or the left or she is from the right or the left. There are obligations that the president has to obey the law and to enforce the law and to act according to law and to act in the nation's best interests. We may differ in how we see those interests. A President Warren or a, or a President Obama may differ from a President Trump or a President Pence or whoever as to what's in the best interest of the nation. But we know that it's not supposed to be your personal interest. It has to be good faith involved. And Trump is the paragon of bad faith. I want to get into the current impeachment strategy legality. And one reason I think you can speak to this issue 
is that you're not a stranger to the phenomenon of impeachment. And maybe not everyone knows this, but you once upon a time back in the 90s represented, I believe, for a time secretly... Well, I didn't Paula represent Jones. her, I, but I did. I did provide. You aided her. I aided her case. lawyers. She didn't even know I existed. For, for the young folks, Paula Jones was who? Paula Jones was a Arkansas state worker, a clerical worker, and apparently, according to the allegations of the complaint, which was confirmed by, admitted by. Clinton's co-defendant in the case, Clinton saw Ms. Jones and then told his state trooper, Danny Ferguson, who was also a defendant, to bring Paula Jones up to his hotel suite at the Excelsior Hotel. And Paula Jones walks in and according to Jones, there was some small talk and then Clinton dropped his pants exposing himself to her and essentially proposing that she perform a sexual act on him. Three years later, um, Jones brought a sexual harassment suit. So, so you're a corporate litigator. This is not your area of no, usual not. practice. And how did I get involved? Yeah, and why? Okay, here's what happened. What was going on? Well, the thing that got me involved was I opened up my New York Times one morning. I guess it must have been in May 94. And... The Clinton, the White House had floated some kind of a trial balloon. And the trial balloon was that Clinton was thinking of invoking presidential immunity to fend off the Jones case. And I read that and I said, presidential immunity? What? <laughs> the record reflect your face is very contorted. Right very now. contorted. I, I, I just thought that that can't be right. And so I did... A few minutes, not that much research, and I came up with the leading authority on presidential immunity, which was a Supreme Court case called Nixon against Fitzgerald. And basically, the rule of law, as expressed by the Supreme Court, is that, yes, presidents do have immunity from civil litigation and liability, absolute immunity, but that that Immunity only extends to the quote-unquote outer perimeter of their official responsibilities. And I was sufficiently moved, I was sufficiently offended by the suggestion of the immunity that I wrote it. I wrote the first time I ever wrote an op-ed piece. Back in 1994. It was 1994, and I wrote an op-ed piece. Uh, The LA Times took it. Ultimately, you prevailed on this legal principle. Right. um, Which has also paved the way... For some of the lawsuits. Oh, by the way, I want to say yeah. the, the title that they put on the piece in the LA Times was No Man in This Country is Above the Law. So the principle that you believed in was ultimately vindicated. Right. Uh, and has paved the way for some of these lawsuits continuing with respect to Donald Trump. Yes. Now, with respect to impeachment of Bill Clinton, because ultimately he ended up telling a lie under oath right. with respect to his relationship with Monica Lewinsky... Uh, You supported impeachment at that time? I did. Do you still? I think I have a much more sophisticated or nuanced view of impeachment now. I mean, my view then was if you commit a, a crime, it's clearly an impeachable act. And particularly one involving 
the enforcement of the law. And he committed perjury and obstruction, I think. And that, to me, was automatic. Today, I'm, I think it's a much closer case than I thought it was then. Because there's some judgment, as I mentioned earlier, about what it is that Congress should exercise its judgment to impeach and remove a president or any federal officer, but especially the president because of the ramifications of removing the president of the United States. They have to exercise judgment as to whether it's something that's not just a one-off, I think. And you have to judge the seriousness of the offense with, is this something that's going to occur? And I think the strong case, the strongest defense actually of Clinton in 98 wasn't that, oh, this was just about sex, which was their defense. This was about sex and lying about sex. But I think the strongest defense was this didn't really relate to his duties in office and wasn't likely to recur. Those were the defenses, I think, in retrospect, were the strongest. I'm much more persuadable today that that was something that Congress could, you know, that Congress may have reached the right judgment. Right. So, so there are two differences, it seems to me, based on what you just said. Right. Between then and now. One is Donald Trump looks like he's a recidivist. In fact, this whole current scandal Correct. Uh, arose one day <laughs> exactly. after yeah. Bob Mueller testified. And I still can't get over that. He testifies July right. 24th. July 25th, he makes right. this call which means he has learned nothing. Correct. Right, so there's He's a, incapable of learning. It doesn't mean anything <laughs> so to him. So recurrence is not only likely, right. but almost certain. Certain, And Correct. the second is, as we get into the, the current day... Lights to his official duties. You know, back then, and I don't have a perfect recollection, and I was relatively young, lots and lots how, of Democrats... How old were you then? I'm, I'm afraid to ask I this was, question. You know, like tw- no, I was in... I was uh, 30. I was 30. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm so uh, you look say, younger than I, was, I am, but I'm I was, little, I was worried you were going to say 16. <laughs> I was going to put my head on this table. No, no, no. Big clunk. no. Look at these lines on my face, um, <laughs> as Brandy Carlisle would say. But the other difference is a lot of Democrats said, look, this conduct was bad. He should not have lied. This was not good. And they decried it, but said it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And here, I think there would be more support for Trump and for Republicans if they said, look, more of them said, this conduct, this phone call, this is all terrible, but I don't think it rises to the level of impeachment, which is something that Tucker Carlson, I think, recently said. So that's sort of Yeah, and I, I think, you know, they, their tendency is to overreach. And I think you and I as litigators understand that the more ridiculous the argument you make, the less persuasive you are. And I think you have to concede things Absolutely. in order to be persuasive because you have to preserve your credibility. And and this White House is absolutely incapable of doing that. I mean, they keep because saying, he's incapable yeah. of doing that. I mean, the, the power of concession is is gigantic, oh and gosh. you don't have to say it was a beautiful and perfect call. No, you don't have to say that everything the whistleblower no said Take this thing out is of wrong. It. It's yeah, it's right. all there. So I mean, you did it. You guys, you as a prosecutor, your your people did that all the time. All you tell you put the first thing you do is when you put your you put your criminal scumbag cooperating witness on and you you put him on and okay tell the first first questions are all the bad things he did right yeah, right and he, because you want him to because <laughs> right. you want it to you come want from him, you. you and see see we're being forthright about it and this guy is never forthright about so it. i don't understand it's on a strategic yeah. level forget about moral uh, because trump's his theory is never to give ground on anything 
and he never shows remorse for anything. He's, you know, he's a... Is that part of his personality disorder or is that just he's a tactical genius? It's a part of his personality disorder. And it relates to both his narcissism and his sociopathy. As a narcissist, he completely lacks empathy. He can't see the world the way other people see see it. It's not just, I feel your pain kind of empathy, but it's also he can't put himself in the position of how other people see him or see the world. And then there's the complete lack of remorse. He's not capable of remorse in any way. You don't see him apologize or feel guilty about anything. The only time you ever saw him apologize was for the Billy Bush tape. The Access Hollywood, right. Right. And and that was within weeks. He was <laughs> a saying, he was telling people, according to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, he was telling people that the thing was doctored, right. which was is a After he admitted it was After him. he admitted it was like, right. and there was no evidence of doctoring. And, and he was telling the United States senators that, that the thing was doctored, which is just completely insane. So, so the polls have been shifting a little bit. Right. What, a what lot, is, actually. What is, what is the significance uh, and what weight should be put on public sentiment in connection with impeachment? Well, I think it's, it is very significant. And I think a bunch of different things are going on here. One is... Obviously, there's movement because I think some people are following Nancy Pelosi's lead. But I also think people are influenced by the brazenness of the conduct that they see that he engaged in with respect to Zelensky. And I also think the bizarreness and the extremeness of his response has triggered a reaction, particularly with you know, those press conferences with the Finnish yeah. prime minister or president or whatever. <laughs> right. I, I mean, always, those I always feel just, bad for those guys. <laughs> I, it's just incredible. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, I hope they get a warnings before they go in there. And then finally, I think, and, and I don't think, I think you can't underestimate this. There's an exhaustion factor that's starting to set in among the marginal Trump supporters, I think, that, like, when is this going to end? What is it with this guy? He continually does this. It's just, I can't take it anymore. It's like, you know, it's like the volume's up at 11 all the time. He just, he digs himself, he keeps digging himself. You know, it's not the fake news. He did this to himself. He does it to himself. He's his own worst enemy. It's the it's even worse because you're like, oh, God, I just want some light entertainment. Maybe I can watch Dancing with the Stars. Oh, my God, there's Sean Spicer. <laughs> like, there's- no, and, and I think that the, the other thing to, to understand about it, too, is, I mean, first of all, the, 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 you have the independent voters, some of whom I think are probably former Republicans. He needed in 2016, remember, he, I mean, the two most n- important numbers in American politics today are 20 which is the number of Republican senators it would take to remove him from office. And the other number is 77,744, which is the aggregate number of votes by which he won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And if there was a secret ballot in the Senate on absolutely. How many Senate votes would there I don't, be Republicans? I, I think, I think they, they could push a button secretly and, and just sort of like it would be a trap door and he'd just fall in and he, we wouldn't hear from him again. Absolutely. How many? I don't know. Probably and 20 pe- at least. I, I, I'm, not a good vo- I, I, I'm not a good vote counter. You're not a whip? On that. I'm not a whip, but from what I've heard, people would just wish, he, wish he'd go away. <laughs> do, you think, do you think McConnell wishes that every night? I, I, who knows? He's so inscrutable. But he can't like, I can't like this stuff. It makes his life miserable. Do, do you think Nancy Pelosi should have a full vote in the House on formally 
proceeding with an impeachment inquiry? Because people are making a lot of uh, noise about I, that. I, well, I mean, I, I think as a legal and constitutional matter, it's completely irrelevant and meaningless. I mean, this letter, which goes back to the Cipollone letter yesterday. I mean, the absurdity yeah, let's go of the back letter. Because you had strong feelings about oh, it. <laughs> I mean, what it's a piece. It's nine pages. It's just garbage. It's one of the worst letters I've seen from the White House Counsel's Office, and they write very well and they make good legal arguments. This when was they can trash. I mean, this was trash. I mean, basically, the thrust of the thrust of it is that there are some kind of constitutional obligations that the House has failed to meet that therefore that, that, that therefore render its impeachment inquiry illegitimate and unconstitutional, which is complete nonsense because all the Constitution says is that the House has the sole power of impeachment. It completely vests the power of impeachment in the House, and the House gets to decide how to go about doing that. All the House has to do at the end of the day is, by a majority vote, vote out a bill of impeachment, which is essentially an indictment. And because it's just essentially an indictment, they don't have to conduct they don't have to conduct hearings at all. They don't have to hear witnesses at all. And they don't have to give anybody the right to cross-examine those witnesses. It's garbage. Right. But you it's know, prudential. But prudentially, well, yeah, to, it's prudentially, to bring the, you, to bring you the country want, along. Right. You want to. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be wise for them not to conduct hearings, but they are under no obligation to to allow the president to participate. And there are, and there are Republican members of, the, of these committees who can, who can ask questions if they do have witnesses. And the, there's no question that, that, that those Republican members are going to be carrying the president's water. So it's just, you know, it's just an excuse to prevent evidence, damning evidence, from reaching the public. So and, how, is and that gonna, how is that going to play out? I, 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 well, I, they basically said we're not going to cooperate. Right. And... They're going to the House side will reach adverse inferences on various things. Right. And and I think, you know, and, and my 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 longtime law partner, Bernie Nussbaum, is one of his proudest accomplishments was writing the article in the Nixon impeachment resolutions that were voted out of the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. The article that said that all of the refusals to cooperate um, by the Nixon White House were in and of itself an impeachable offense. And this is this is just basically exhibit A. This is basically saying we're not given anything at all. And it's it's really quite remarkable. And it was triggered by apparently the fact that these texts that came out were so damning and between and, and among these correct, diplomats. These diplomats, right. Who were involved with right. Ukraine. Were you shocked that the President of the United States and the White House put out the readout of the call between him and Ukrainian President Zelensky and the whistleblower complaint so quickly? Um, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I'm amazed that they didn't realize, they clearly did not realize, or he didn't realize, how incriminating it was. Is that part of the personality disorder? <laughs> I, I, it may be. It may also be that people around him Realized that it was a political non-starter, and this is speculation. It's not based upon any knowledge. To to withhold those the memos, the memo, and they made the argument to him that don't worry, boss. Maybe they misled him, or maybe they sugarcoated it for him. I I just don't know. Does Donald Trump know the difference between right and wrong? Uh, Donald Trump doesn't think in terms of right and wrong. He thinks in terms of me. No, seriously. I, that, that's what. That's how he thinks. Now, in the sense of you know applying the 
McNaughton rule or whatever standard of insanity defense, he's capable of understanding the difference between right and wrong, which means he's culpable. But and he can be held accountable. And he can be held accountable for, yeah. for his for his for his misconduct. But right and wrong concepts of justice. When you hear him reading things about freedom and democracy and justice off a teleprompter, you you know the affect is typically flat. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Those words mean absolutely. He he can't he can't articulate those things if you took it away from him. If he's not reading them, they don't mean anything to him. At this point, what should the articles of impeachment be? Do you think they should focus only on Ukraine that's, so far? Or? That's a tough question. Yeah. I, think, I, I think Ukraine has to be front and center. I personally think that the obstruction of the Mueller investigation should be there. And Is I, that additive or does that dilute? Well, some people think it dilutes because it gets into the whole Russia thing and people find the Russia thing confusing. But I I just don't see that. I I just think that the simple theme is he puts himself first. And the whole story about obstruction is here's an investigation to find out what the Russians did to us, how they interfered with our electoral process. And there's no dispute that they did a lot of stuff. And all he wanted to do was to stop that investigation because it, he found it personally embarrassing because he didn't want people to think that his losing by three million votes wasn't a great victory. Right. <laughs> I mean, the other reason maybe you want to have it in there is it tells the story. It tells the story. It's, and it's, frankly, he it, did all that. I mean, look, right. the, the reason people are so up in arms now, and I think you've said this, is because of all that went before. If nothing had happened before and we found out about Ukraine— right. You know, people wouldn't be as fed up as they are. And that's, and that's right. And it's and it's also it also combats the notion. I mean, Ukraine wasn't just a phone call. But even if it were just a phone call, it wouldn't be just a phone call because of all the other stuff he's done, including the obstruction of the Mueller investigation, which is just which is just remarkable. I mean, he he not only did he try to figure out ways to stop the investigation, illegitimate ways. I mean, he's using a cutout like Corey Lewandowski, right? There's no difference fundamentally between that and Nixon trying to use a lie to shut down the FBI by saying, oh, there's a national security issue. He's using bogus bogus methods and bogus means it wasn't in good faith. And then he tries to get McGahn to tell Rosenstein to shut it down on the basis of a bogus conflict. And McGahn basically packs up his office and says, I'm ready to quit. And then Trump relents. But if McGahn hadn't done that, it would have happened. He would have tried to do it. I don't think Rosenstein would have complied. He was saved by all these people. He was saved by all these people. Who were not otherwise Boy Scouts. And then (laughs) it gets worse. The story comes out in the New York Times and Trump goes to McGahn and says, I want you to write a memo to the file saying it didn't happen. And so, the, you know, that's asking somebody to create a false document, yeah. a false government record. That's obstruction of justice. It's obstruction of justice about obstruction of justice. It's meta-obstruction. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, this I've, guy, I've, should I mean, there be an article we, on meta-obstruction? Like, but he, he, only Donald Trump could commit meta-obstruction. <laughs> it's like if, 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 if anybody else had done this, they'd be, they'd, be, they'd be indicted. Right. But the OLC says you can't. So just to uh, summarize, George Conway to the committee, call psychologists... Add the Mueller stuff. Third question, how fast should all this go? 
as fast as reasonably possible. I think they need to do it in the next several weeks. I don't think. Now, the problem is the White House is clearly engaging in obstructionist tactics. Um, They don't, you know, I mean, not allowing these diplomats to testify, including including an especially Taylor. I mean, Taylor's story will be would be fascinating to hear. Um, it that that's their Taylor, clearly, Bill Taylor, the, the interim correct. ambassador to Ukraine, right? right. Who, the one who wrote these texts that basically said, "Well, hey, this shouldn't be a you know, we shouldn't be conditioning this on that. <laughs> exactly, right?" He was, so I he, mean, he knew what he was he was doing. He knew what he was doing, and then, and then Sondheim had to go back to what's his name? Sondland. Yeah, he had to, he had to go back and talk to Trump <laughs> to figure out how to respond to that. Oh, there is no quid. And by that time, the whistleblower had surfaced. They were already in those. They knew they were in crosshairs already, right? Should, should the articles make it a point to set forth? The quid pro quo, or is that not? I don't think a quid pro quo is necessary to establish an impeachable offense. I mean, I think the quid pro quo is pretty much apparent, at least by circumstantially. So put it in. I'd put it in. But I think I. I, But I. I I think you. You know, you want to make clear that it's not essential. I mean, merely raising Biden in the attempt to pressure a foreign government into investigating a conspiracy theory against Joe Biden and Hunter Biden is in and of itself impeachable. And and conditioning, which is pretty clear, conditioning a a a White House meeting on that. And then the evidence of the quid pro quo for the money. I mean, you have Taylor's text and you actually have Senator Johnson saying that it, there was an admission made to him, I believe. At this point, likelihood of impeachment is what? Oh, I think it's pretty much 100%. I, I think he's going to get impeached. I think that the Cipollone letter yesterday virtually guarantees it. Virtually guarantees yeah. it. What what grade would you give to Adam Schiff in his performance so far? Um, I don't want to lend credence to. I, I think he's doing fine. I don't want to lend credence to this notion that he. I don't know that I would have done the dramatization that he did. It wasn't meant to be deceptive in any way. He had a disclaimer, but he had a disclaimer, and it was not and, a good and move. It, I, I just think it's when you've got the facts on your side, there's no need to dramatize them. So it, I think that's more of a, um, so you, a lesson learned kind of thing. You don't think it was treason? No, I don't <laughs> think it was treason. <laughs> you know, it's, it easy, it's le- easy to be critical from, from of, legal of, scholar. Yeah, George Conway. It's was easy not to be treason. critical. So. I want to talk about some other occasions where you've given advice. Oh, to Donald Trump, and I've waited an entire oh, hour no. to ask you. You worn me down to ask you this question. Yeah. And well, this, giving giving advice to him is a, is a futile task. I well, think. I guess that's true. But there was an article in the Washington Post <laughs> back in March, fake news, that says the following: Trump quizzed Conway. This is on an airplane flight. Oh, you were on the plane. You didn't think you didn't think I was going to ask you this. Oh yeah, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to hear that it was now. The, that was two days before the inauguration. Yeah, that was a day he called me. By the way, so I'm wondering what time this conversation happened. It was at night. He called me two days before the inauguration, yeah. and I spoke to him, and he, he made nice. But the Washington Post claims that on a, on a flight, I guess, that evening, right. quote, Trump quizzed Conway about whether he should fire Preet Bharara, right. then the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. Conway right. said, quote, I said, in general, it's better to have your people in terms of important positions yeah, that's than others. And he said- oh, No offense, Preet. So did you get me fired, man? I, I didn't mean to. I, I just didn't. I, the, the the question was, it took me a little off guard. So I didn't, you know, I mean, I didn't know why he was asking the question. And I still don't know why he, he was asked, asking the but question. But he asked specifically about me. He asked specifically about you. 
And it came out of the blue. We were It was on his, you know, Trump 757, which we flew from LaGuardia to, to DCA. The best plane. The best plane. And the perfect plane. The perfect plane. We were sitting there and it was me and there was Hope Hicks and it was my wife and I and the converse for some reason, he just, that question just popped out and I didn't know what he had in mind. And so I kind of gave the, a responsive non-response. It's like, well, if you want to have your own person in there, you know, I guess that makes sense. It's essentially that that's what that was meant to convey. I mean, the language I used was pretty much what I just yeah. said to the post. Did anyone else chime in? No, but I don't, I don't know what, I didn't attach any nefarious significance to Mm -hmm. it at that time, and I still don't. I just don't know what he was thinking at that time. So we've spent a lot of time talking about— But I don't don't think I got you fired, Preet. Well, it it would be fine because now we get to have this relationship, (laughs) which just means a lot to me, George. We we spent a lot of time talking about Trump's narcissistic personality disorder. What personality disorder does Rudy Giuliani have? I don't—I have no idea. I don't dare— I, that's too I have much not, for you? I have not. <laughs> that's, that's where you I, reach your I, limit? I, 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 I have no idea. I haven't thought about that, and I don't, I'd have to talk to experts about it, and I, I, you'd have to really think about, I don't know what it is. I just don't know. I, you know. I mean, I'm sure there's a level of narcissism involved. I mean, he's always been an attention, but I, I, I just don't know. I don't know. But Do he's know- been wacky. Oh, my gosh. Do you know Bill Barr, the attorney general, personally? No. What grade do you give him? F. F. That's an easy F. Yeah. Uh, you gave advice to Donald Trump about what lawyers he should hire? I was asked right after, I think it was the week that Rod Rosenstein appointed Mueller. And it was the day that Trump went off to Saudi Arabia. And it was within a couple of hours of him leaving. I basically got a call saying that, you know, the president wanted to talk to me about lawyers and, you know, who he should hire. And I knew that he was considering um, some people that I knew, in particular, a close friend of mine. And so I did. The White House switchboard called and it was the president, and about 10 people in the room. It was crazy. There were so many people. There was the vice president. There was the chief of staff, Reince Priebus. Jared was in the room. There were a slew of other people. He went through the whole thing, and he basically went through a list of people and asked me my thoughts about each of them. And I did the best I could to say, you know, what their, what their merits were. Did you follow your advice? Well, he couldn't because I mean, I basically said they were all fine. He couldn't follow my advice because none of them would end up do, would end do up the job. do the job because you know he has this. First of all, everybody thinks he's nuts, and secondly, he doesn't pay his bills. I mean, he stiffs every law. He's stiffed every law firm in town. Ta- no, not every law firm in town, but he's stiffed, he stiffed a lot of law firms in this town. Um, Can we talk about twenty twenty? Yeah, twenty twenty. Should Mitt Romney get in the race? Primary it, president. I, I would that would that would be a great thing. I don't think he's going to do it. Would, would I know. You, I, I, I've, I've heard. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Do you support Joe Walsh getting in the race? I, I support basically anybody who's in the race who's going to take it to him and point out his unfitness. Would, would you take a position formally on any campaign like Joe Walsh's? No, I. I mean, I, I, I was asked to. It's not something I, I really 
it's not really my cup of tea. I don't, I don't think I'd be good at it. And it's not, it's not something I think I would do. You know, I said, I thought about it for New York Minute. Right. I mean, I, I ask about Joe Walsh only because I, I, I mean, wonder how far afield one has to go. I mean, he's a great guitarist. And, from, you know, what I, <laughs> he, al- he also said of the Sandy Hook parents, he's like sick and tired of them. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, 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 not going to defend things that he said in the past, but I will say that he's right on target with regard to Donald Trump today. Who do you think in the Republican Party is the voice of reason? I don't think there really is. And this is the sad thing. I don't think there is a voice of moral clarity of any weight in the Republican Party today. And I think that's just terribly sad. Are there people you're most disappointed in, in this regard? I, I just think that the disappointment runs very broadly. I, I think it's just amazing to me that there's that there there that there really isn't anyone. And I'm I don't mean to be. It's just disappointing to me that there isn't somebody of some stature who's willing to just say this man's unfit because they all know it. They just all know it. You know they know it. And I don't know what's so hard about saying it. It's obvious. And I think if you want to go down in history as having served your country, you would say it's served your country well. You should say that. So I, I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. They just hope he just comes to pass. I mean, I understand early on you could say, well... Let's hope he gets better. Let's see if we can work with him. But we've seen so much now. It's just... What about the generals who are now gone, like Mattis and McMaster and Kelly? Do you hold any you know, hope I, that I, I, I don't because I think they would have by now. And I think there's another... I wish they would speak out, but... And I'm a, I guess I'm a little less critical of them because I think it's hard for them to lose there's an ethos there of not politicizing the military and I think they don't want to go out and be openly critical of a commander-in-chief especially when the commander-in-chief is commander-in-chief and I think that's just ingrained in them. Right. I mean, there seems to be, there's a devotion and to I, norms. I just, but the thing yeah. is, but, this, but they're civilians now is, is sort of my response to that. But I, I just think they just, they're just not going to do it. Yeah. I wish they would. Yeah. And then, and we saw that article in the Atlantic uh, two days ago where active duty general officers are at least on background saying the man's unfit and he's a disaster. It seems to me there's a persistent devotion to norms in a universe in which norms have all been trampled yeah. and exploded. Yeah. On the Democratic side, I don't know if you've weighed in on the assortment of candidates available. Yeah. And I don't know if you talk about your future voting preferences. Are there Democrats you would vote for over Donald Trump? Look, I've said previously that I will vote for any candidate that, who does not have a significant personality disorder who has a chance <laughs> of beating Donald Trump. Including Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, if she fits that bill, yes. Does she fit that bill? I would assume so, yes. You haven't done the analysis. I haven't done the analysis, but I'm not, I, I will tell you this. I will, there is no way that I will ever cast a vote for Donald Trump. 
I'll stay home. I'll, I'll write you in, Preet. <laughs> Even though I wasn't born here. Yeah. And it could be one way to make amends, though. Oh, well. Um, do, do you think there's I'll, anyone... I'll write, in, I'll write in... You have a dog? I'll write in your dog. How, how about this way? Let me ask you this way. Is there a Democrat in the field who you think would be best suited to bringing us back to norms after Donald Trump? <sighs> That's a hard question. I mean, I'd like to think... I'd like to think that any of them would. I hope that they, whoever it is, will. But I haven't done the comparative thinking about it. If Donald Trump is impeached and in the rare you know, likelihood that he gets removed from office, do you think he actually will leave? I think he'll have no choice. You think so? Right. Because I think that basically the rest of the system will, I mean, if there's a Senate judgment of conviction that is signed by that is signed, sealed, and delivered. I guess, I mean, it would be, I, guess it would, I guess the chief justice would <laughs> would sign the judgment. I, I guess I don't know. I mean, uh, and it, it would have legal effect, and I think everyone would obey that. And I think that his his actions would become null and void as of that moment. And I think everybody would obey that judgment. We're still a nation of laws, and I think people would obey that judgment. Yes, even if he if he asserted that it was invalid, I don't think I don't think that would carry any weight. So one of the things you've done is. You have helped to create an organization called Checks and Balances. That's right. Made up of a lot of conservatives who share your views about the president of the United States. Right. And we're on Thursday. It's our plan to issue a statement in support of the impeachment inquiry and making a strong statement about how the president's conduct with respect to Ukraine is a violation of his solemn duties to the nation and in support of holding an impeachment vote on the House floor and a potential trial in the Senate. George Conway, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for having me, Preet. It was a pleasure. Great. It's fun. My conversation with George Conway continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this bonus from the interview, George tells me how all of this has affected him personally. I also stumped him with this question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Continue listening to our conversation with a free two-week trial of the Cafe Insider membership. You can get it at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, George Conway. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. You can tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton, and the CAFE team is Carla Pirini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks this week to Cat Aaron and Pineapple Street Media. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Simply Safe makes home security easy with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. And for just $15 a month, you get 24-7 professional monitoring throughout your home. 
Simply Safe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm break-ins when they happen, which allows police to get to you 3.5 times faster. Visit simplysafe.com/preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com/preet. simplysafe.com/preet.